Luke chapter 18. We're in the midst of a series on the subject, the master's morality. And Russ asked me to bring a message on the subject, the subtle sellout. And I would be more than happy to do that. Luke chapter 18. <laughs> Life. Luke chapter 18. Now, I guess you can't read it, can you? I didn't think of that. That just dawned on me. Can't take notes? Yeah, is there a reason you're seated in darkness? Weird things are happening in this chapel. Luke chapter 18. I see the door open, so no doubt the lights will be coming on. Let's stand together as I read it to you. Luke chapter 18, the last part of verse 8. It's an interesting phrase that Christ uttered in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. It doesn't even seem to flow with the context. He was talking on the subject of prayer. And when he comes to the last part of verse 8, it is as if he totally departs from that subject and this thing comes out of nowhere. doesn't even seem to fit the flow. But it is a thought that I've echoed in my own mind many, many times. As I read it to you, listen to what he's saying. However, this was a very transparent moment in his life. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? A transparent moment in which he allows us to see inside his own heart a fear that stirred up within him. The word faith in your Bible has the definite article with it in the original. It should be translated this way. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? Let's bow together in prayer and then we'll talk about that. Father, thank you for the privilege of coming together this morning. Thank you for the privilege I have of sharing this time with people who are very near and dear to my own heart. Thank you for the friendships that we've built this semester. Father, we pray that as we turn our attention now to the Word of God, you will speak to each one. Thank you for the penetrating power of its message. We commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? A reference to his second coming. A question that lurked in his own mind. The faith. That phrase, the faith, embodies everything that you and I believe. Everything contained within this book. The question is this, when the Son of Man comes, will there be anyone who believes the truth of the Word of God? Anyone? That is not talking about faith in the general generic sense. Obviously, people always believe something. He's not asking the question, when I return, will people believe in anything? People have always believed in something. But this is specific. It is particular. When the Son of Man comes, will there be anyone holding to biblical truth? Or will all of them have sold out? I have read the last page of this book, and I know what it says. I know that it says that I am on the winning team. And I know that it says that we have already won this thing. The victory has been secured. I have read that, and I believe that. But I have to confess to you that there are many times, especially within work, the context of working with young people, that I have collapsed in a chair in my office and hung my head in my hands and asked myself this question, is it already too late? Have we already lost it? Seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? 
seems like that it is too little, too late. And the world is held in the palm of the hand of the evil one. And the day is past when we can do anything to redeem or salvage mankind. Sometimes I wonder about that. I remember vividly last week we had a gentleman here speaking in a Bible forum on the subject of AIDS. And the question came up, what can we do to stop the epidemic that is now worldwide? And his ominous response was this. In 1981, we could have done something about it. In 1981, we could have taken everyone infected with AIDS and quarantined them and stopped the spread. In 1981, the problem was solvable. But in 1987, to quote his words, The horse is out of the barn. It is too late. Barring some kind of a miracle drug that will bring a healing and a vaccine to people around the world, it is too late to do anything. And sometimes I wonder if that's true in the realm of spiritual warfare. Is it too late? Have we already lost? When the Son of Man returns, will He find the faith on the earth or will everyone have sold out? The crying need today is for men and women who are not willing to sell out at any price. And they are at a premium. It's hard to find them. Selling out was nothing new to Jesus Christ. I'm sure rattling around in his mind when he asked that very penetrating question, he was thinking of the fact that his own brothers mocked him. His own disciples doubted him. Peter was going to deny him. Judas was going to betray him. Selling out was nothing new to Jesus Christ. He knew all about it. The um, streets of church history are littered with the decaying corpses of men and women like Demas, who having loved this present evil age, has deserted him. Selling out is nothing new. The story is told, and many of you have probably heard it, about the woman who, working as a secretary, was called into her boss's office and he said to her that he wanted to have a sexual encounter with her she was a married woman and he wanted to have a sexual relationship with her and she was not willing and he asked her the question if I pay you one thousand dollars will you do it her boss employer knew that they were struggling financially and could use the money And she hesitated for a moment. Her mind was whirling around like a disk drive on your computer as she processed that information. $1,000 and she clarified it. Let me get it straight. You mean one time. No one will know. One sexual encounter, $1,000. He said, that's right. She thought a few moments more and then she said, okay, I'll do it. To which he responded, would you do it for $100? She exploded. The question that blurted out of her mouth was this, what kind of a woman do you think I am? And his response to that was very profound. He said, we have already determined what kind of woman you are. Now we're simply negotiating the price. What about you? Do you have a price? What will cause you and me to sell out? The issue isn't how much. I can assure you the enemy will pay whatever price you place on your head. 
He has ample resources at his disposal to pay whatever price. What God is looking for are men and women who have no price. Hard to find. They are at a premium in every echelon of society, from the highest office in the land to a skid row bum. Our streets are littered with the decaying corpses of people who sell out. It's not unique to the church. And in a series on the morality of the master, it is time for us to come together and understand that the priority in the kingdom of God is for a man, a woman, who is not willing to sell out at any price. A man or a woman of what I like to call conviction. Conviction. Not just men and women of the right belief. A belief is something you put down on a test in a classroom. A conviction is something for which you'll put down your life in the world. We believe the right things, but are we willing to die for them? That's the issue. Where are the men and women today like Joseph, who when he was in the presence of a luscious woman who tried to seduce him, nobody around, nobody would know, a man who had every right to be bitter against God, a man rejected by his brothers, a man who was sold into slavery, a man taken to a foreign land as a hostage, a man forced to grow up in a hostile environment away from his family, a man who I'm sure was desperately lonely. And when no one was around, his boss's wife, gorgeous, grabbed him and tried to seduce him. And the words that he expressed in that moment of horrifying temptation have echoed down through human history ever since. How can I do this evil thing and sin against my God, a man of conviction. Where are the men and women today who are like Joshua and Caleb, who in Numbers chapter 14 stood in front of three million crybaby Jews? Remember the story? They were on the border of the promised land, a land promised to them flowing with milk and honey. And when the 40 spies came back and said, the people of the land are great and we cannot conquer the land, three million Jews wanted to betray Moses and go back to Egypt. A mutiny. And two men, Joshua and Caleb, in front of three million people stood straight and tall. And in Numbers chapter 14, verse 6, the Bible says they tore their clothes as an expression of overwhelming emotion. And in verse 8, they shouted to the people, If the Lord is with us, He will bring us into the land. A man of conviction. Where are they today? Where are the men like Peter and John who in Acts chapter 4 verse 19 were threatened with their very lives, told to stop preaching, and their response to that was this, we must obey God, not you. And were willing to lay their lives down on the spot, unconditional, if that's the price that had to be paid. What about Daniel chapter 1, read to us earlier this morning. A man himself taken hostage, forced to grow up in a, the land of Babel and a land overrun with idolatry. But Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. Is that true of you? And is that true of me? That is what spiritual leadership is. Spiritual leadership is the influence of a life refusing to compromise no matter what the cost. Convictions. What are they? What are those areas of biblical truth we refuse to compromise no matter what the cost? Let's identify the issues. What are those biblical absolutes that are non-negotiable in my life? 
Those areas of my life for which I have no price put a gun to our heads, threaten to pull the trigger, and our response is, shoot. What are those areas of biblical truth? Let me lay them out for you. Write them down, number one. Conviction number one. Jesus Christ alone rules the universe. Therefore, and for every conviction there will be a therefore. Jesus Christ alone rules the universe. Therefore, He alone rules my life. Jesus Christ alone rules the universe. Therefore, He alone rules my life. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I'm not ashamed to admit that to you or to anyone. In fact, I'm rather proud of it. He is the Lord of my life. That is a powerful, penetrating statement. He is the master. I am his slave. And my purpose on this earth is to do his beck and call, whatever it may be, with instantaneous obedience. He is the master. I am what Paul called his bond slave. In Matthew, we read that Jesus Christ is king. In Revelation, we read at the end of the New Testament, Revelation 19, verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is who he is. In Philippians chapter 2, my favorite passage in all of the Bible, verses 10 and 11, we read this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is who He is. He is Lord. He is a Lord who demands absolute, total obedience. For a Christian to live in rebellion against Jesus Christ is for that person to be a living contradiction. Rebellion is not to even be in the vocabulary of a believer when Jesus says it, we do it. There is a theological issue brewing today across the country. Our president is right in the middle of it. The issue of, quote, lordship salvation. Have you heard about that one? The age-old story, when does a person become a Christian? Can you receive Christ as Savior at one point and receive Him as Lord later? And the two factions are coming head-to-head over this very issue. The one faction saying, yes, you can receive Christ as Savior and benefit from the forgiveness of your sin, and Lordship can be an issue to be dealt with later. As if we compartmentalize who Christ is. The other faction says this, no, 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 if you're going to be a Christian, you must make him the Lord of your life. Only then can you truly be saved. I don't agree with either position. I don't even relate to the phrase, make Jesus Lord of your life. What does that mean? You don't make Jesus Christ anything, and I don't know what has happened in the church today to convince us, and I've heard it many times in in camp forums and others, where a speaker will get up and say, now that you know Christ is your Savior, make Him the Lord of your life. I don't even know what that means. We don't make Him anything. Who do we think we are that we create Christ in the image we choose? We don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. That's who He is. And our options are one of two. We have the option of submitting to that or rebelling against that. That's it. That's it. I cringe when I think of one Sunday morning when in front of my youth group I looked at the back wall and seated against the back wall in my youth group was the front line of the Hoover High School football team. 
And I pulled the guys aside after we were done. They had never been there before. And I thanked them for coming and I asked them why they came. And they expressed to me that they went on some retreat that weekend before and had received Christ. And I patted them on the back, gave them a high five, shook their hands, said, way to go. Why did you do it? And one of the guys who was the more outspoken of the group said, because with God on our team, we can't lose. I filed that away for future reference. The next week, one of the girls in my youth group came to me absolutely horrified and told me that the night before, she had been walking down her street on her block, past the house of her friend. There was a wild party going on. Hundreds of kids crammed into this yard and this home. People drinking drugs. And she said, as I walked by, there were a group of guys standing on the curb... A couple of them were urinating on the fenders of the cars parked in the street and a couple of the others were vomiting in the gutter. And she said, I recognized who they were. They were the guys who were in church Sunday, the front line of the Hoover High football team. And she said, I pulled one of them aside and I said, I thought you just received Christ. And he said, I did. And she said, I asked him, what are you doing here? To which he responded, listen. I may have received Christ at that retreat the other day, but there's no way I will ever let him control my life. That has become modern day salvation theology. We have raised a generation of young people on a message that has expressed to them the thought that a person can come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but no way will he ever control my life. That is a hellish heresy. And in his latest book, Kingdoms in Conflict, Charles Colson nails it loud and clear when he makes this statement, quote, To put it simply, humanists fail to understand humanity. Humanists, those are the ones who believe that man is getting better and better and better and will usher in a utopian society. They have failed to understand humanity in the sense that we are depraved and it will never happen. But it is equally tragic that Christians fail to understand the message of Christ. What is the message of Christ? The message of Christ is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because He is Lord, I have no alternative but to submit my life to Him in an act of total obedience. That is non-negotiable. Do you agree or do you have a price? When the right combination of circumstances comes along in your life, are you willing to violate that non-negotiable biblical absolute? Jesus Christ alone rules the universe, therefore He rules my life. Period. That's number one. Number two. The Bible alone is inspired by God. The Bible alone is inspired by God. Therefore, it is absolutely true and the final authority in my life. The Bible alone is inspired by God and is therefore absolutely true. I believe that every word in this book is true and I believe that every part of every word in this book is true. I do not believe it contains one myth within its pages, one scientific, geographical, archaeological. 
The Bible has proven itself to me over and over again. And I would defy anyone, as I have done in many public forums, who cheap shot the Bible to put their money where their mouth is and show me one inaccuracy within its pages. It has withstood the test of time for 2,000 years. No one has been able to disprove it. Whenever there has been a conflict archaeologically, historically, geographically, prophetically, or scientifically, within the pages of this book, given time, the Bible has always proved itself right and science or history wrong. Every time. It is for that reason that I do not hesitate to proclaim its truth without any sense of fear. Boldness comes with a commitment to this book as absolute and accurate. I believe that, do you? And because of that, this book, and only this book, determines how I live, that's character, and what I believe, those are convictions. This book. I believe that it is absolute, I believe that it is binding upon my life, and I believe that it is sufficient to meet every need that I have. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, these words, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. Where does the true knowledge of God come from? This book contains it. This book, Peter declared, has given me everything I need to living a victorious life and a godly life. This book. To turn to any other authority, any other person, anyone else's writings, any other ideology, any other theory, to give me the answers for the issues I deal with in my life is absolute foolishness. This book has it all. It is sufficient. For me to hold this book in my hand and yet neglect it by failing to read or study it or meditate upon it is for me to willingly plunge myself into woeful deception. For me to hold this book in my hand and rebel against it is the epitome of self-destruction. The highest privilege that I have in my life is to study the words written to me by the God whom I love and serve. And to have an approach to the Bible that makes it anything less than it is, is a slap in his face. This is all we need. Nothing else. To determine how I live my life on every level. My family life, the blueprint is given right here. My personal life, the blueprint is given right here. My social life, the blueprint is given right here. My economic life, how I handle money, the blueprint is given right here. This is all I need. And conflict only comes when this book is neglected or violated. I believe that. I'd be willing to die for it. How about you? Number three. My purpose in life. My purpose in life is to allow God to have a voice to a desperately darkened generation. My purpose in life is to allow God to have a voice to a desperately darkened, and I might add, deceived generation. That is why I live. 
I live for no other reason. I am here for one reason, and that is to allow God to have a voice. I am here to exert a godly influence. I am here to communicate a godly message. I am here to set a godly standard. That is why I am here. Same with you. I am not here just to earn a living. I'm not here just to raise a family. I'm not here just to enjoy a life of recreation. I am here to allow God to have a voice. And once I am through fulfilling that responsibility, then God will take me home. The only thing I can do on planet earth that I cannot do in heaven is to allow God to have a voice to a deceived and darkened generation. Therefore, therefore, my life must be right and my message must be right. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Pay close attention to yourself, that's a godly life, and pay close attention to your teaching, that is a biblical message. Life must be consumed with both of those goals. Living a godly life and communicating a biblical message. That is absolute. That is binding. When I proclaim the word of God in whatever forum I am in, whether it be in a public way like this or talking to a neighbor one-on-one -on -one over a cup of coffee, two things are true. I want to communicate the word of God without compromise. And I want to communicate the Word of God with compassion. Because the people to whom I speak are desperately hurting. And there is a need today for a prophet who is willing to communicate the truth of the Word of God without bending, without compromising, without twisting it in any way, but a person who is willing to speak with a heart of compassion. There's a cul-de-sac near my home, and I go there often, and from this cul-de-sac I can see all of Canyon Country in a panorama of, of a beautiful sight. And at night it's rather breathtaking, the lights are many, and as I stand there, night after night, the words echo in my mind that someone shared with me a while back, for every light that you see, there is a broken heart. It's true. And so, I want to dedicate my life to taking the truth of this book and with compassion sharing it with the broken hearts around me. That's why we're here. And I don't know what career you're searching for, preparing for, but if I sat you down and asked you why you chose the career you did, I hope the answer would be because in some way you visualize it in your mind as a platform from which you can reach broken-hearted people with the truth they need. If you don't see your career as a pulpit, then you're going into the wrong career. Or at best, you're going into the right career with the wrong motive. My purpose in life is to allow God to have a voice to a desperately deceived and darkened generation. Therefore, my life must be right and my message must be right. Now let's get real practical. Number four, real practical. My body is the living temple of God. I believe that, do you? God dwells inside this body. Therefore, I will not pollute it, I will not defile it. My body is the living temple of God, therefore I will not pollute it, I will not defile it. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul said this, Every one of you should know how to possess his body in sanctification and honor. Let me define some terms. Sanctification. 
The word means this. God has set me apart as a special person for a special purpose. Therefore, I must live that way. God has set me apart as a special person for a special purpose. Therefore, I must live that way. Sanctification. Honor. What does honor mean? Simple. I'm to treat my body in a way that will bring God glory. So, to translate that into a practical term, I will not pollute nor will I defile my body. It is the temple of the living God. What does that mean? It means this. It means a number of things. It means that sex outside of marriage is sin. It is immorality. I cannot do it. I cannot even conceive of doing such a thing. Because to participate in immorality is to do what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. Take the temple of the holy God and join it to a harlot. God forbid. God forbid. And even beyond that... The love and devotion toward my own wife is such that I couldn't even conceive of that level of unfaithfulness to her. Homosexuality is a perversion of God's created order. It is sin. It is not an alternate lifestyle. It has nothing to do with a hormonal imbalance at the time of birth. It has nothing to do with present-day psychologists' interpretation of the problem in that when the kid was three years old, his parents gave him, uh, gave her, him a Barbie doll instead of a Tonka truck, and his sexual identity has now been confused. It is not true what a high school teacher said in my city to a class of 33 15-year-old sophomores that if you have a homosexual encounter and enjoy it, congratulations, you have just discovered your sexual identity. I don't believe that. In Matthew chapter 19, the Bible says, Have you not read, Jesus said, He who created them from the beginning made the male and female. That is God's created order. And homosexuality is a perversion of that. It is not a class of people deserving rights. It is a type of sin deserving wrath. But Christ loves homosexuals. Died for them. And we love them too. But in reaching out to them in love to compromise the message in any way, is to do the word of God a terrible disservice. It is sin. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things may be lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Anything that has the potential of addiction is wrong in the life of a believer. I will not be mastered by anything. Anything that has the potential of addiction is wrong for a believer. I'll never forget one time when I was about 10 years old watching my father waking up one morning and having to have a cigarette and he couldn't find one. He had a couple of packs laying around and he grabbed them and they were empty. And I watched him go into an absolute frenzy as he frantically tore the house apart looking for a cigarette. Ten years old and I'm watching this. It is vividly imprinted upon my mind. And after about 20 minutes of being absolutely out of control... 
tearing dressers apart, looking under couch cushions, looking under furniture, on the floor. Finally, in the corner of a dresser drawer, he found one. And with his hands fumbling and shaking, he had the cigarette in one hand, he had a match in the other. Somehow he managed to light the match. I don't know how he did it. And without having the thing blow out, he brought the two together, ignited the tip of the cigarette and... Calm down. And I can remember as a 10-year-old boy thinking to myself, I will never allow myself to become a slave to anything. Anything. For a believer to be addicted to anything is for a believer to violate the principle that this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and how dare I allow it to become chemically or emotionally dependent upon anything. One out of eight people who drinks alcohol in any form ends up a chronic alcoholic. I'm not into Russian roulette with the temple of the Holy Spirit, are you? And I don't need an outside stimulant to fulfill my life. Christ has fulfilled it adequately. My body is a living temple of the Holy Spirit and I will not defile it or pollute it. How about you? Number five. My marriage is a lifelong commitment to God first and to my wife second. When we shared a wedding vow together, it was made in the presence of God. It was a vow I made to Him as well as to my wife. The vow that I made was that I would be faithful to her until death us do part. A lifelong commitment. It was a conviction that I held before I was married as well as after marriage. And therefore, because marriage is a lifelong commitment to God first and my marriage partner second, my dating standards must reflect the holiness of God. And now after marriage, divorce is not an option. Not an option. Matthew 19, verse 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It is not an option. And in my dating, I must understand that I am preparing myself for a lifelong commitment. And therefore, the standards I observe in my dating must honor the word of God. Number six, I believe that man is created in God's image. Therefore, all human life is sacred. All human life is sacred. From the unborn to the elderly, regardless of what our world might consider to be some kind of a defect, I do not buy into Nazi theology that says that there is a superior race of people, arbitrarily determined by the standards of man. I believe that abortion is murder. Period. No, yeah, but. Yeah, but the woman's life is in danger. Yeah, but it's the result of rape. I don't buy into yeah, buts. Abortion is murder. Period. I believe that. Psalm 139 says that God is hand stitching together that child. It is not a, um, the fetus is not a potential human being, as we have been led to believe. It is a human being with potential. 
My wife is seven months pregnant and could go to our local abortion clinic, sign a paper, and have that child extracted from her body. And yet if she was to go into labor now, that child would be able to survive. You can't tell me that it is not a human being. That's a lie. When she was two months pregnant, we had a sonogram done, and I could see the fingertips, I could see the formation of the hand, I could see the feet, and listen to the heartbeat. You can't tell me that's not a human being. Abortion is murder. And we are in the grip, ladies and gentlemen, in case you don't realize it, we are in the grip of a holocaust nationwide that eclipses Hitler's holocaust by a ratio now of three to one. Do you realize that? And as people look back to Nazi Germany and in a way disparage the church by crying out, where was the voice of the church when this was going on? I would say the same thing today and historians will echo the thought. With 18 million unborn children murdered in America, placed in trash bags, dumped out in back alleys now since 1973, Roe versus Wade, where is the voice of the church in calling it what it is? Murder. Racial discrimination is sin. Jesus Christ was not a white man. He came from the one part of the world that touches Europe, Asia, and Africa. He is the blend of every race. Every man's blood flows through his veins. And to consider someone of having no potential due to what our world would call a defect or a deformity of some kind is to violate the principle of the image of God, for God can use anyone. God can even use a rock to bring Him glory. Man is created in God's image and therefore all human life is sacred. Four more and four minutes. So here we go. One per conviction. Number seven. It takes a lifetime to build a good reputation and one unguarded moment to destroy it. It takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, one unguarded moment to destroy it. Therefore, I must live my life above reproach. Avoiding, as the Bible says, even the appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 1 Thessalonians 5.22 A principle that I learned long ago is that you and I never sin in isolation. Last summer I was in a little teeny airport in Albany, New York. The airport in Albany, New York is smaller than Hollywood Burbank Airport. It's a dinky little thing. And I was standing there 3,000 miles away from home all by myself. I had a layover in between flights. Nobody was around. I went to the magazine rack and two magazines immediately caught my eye simultaneously, Sports Illustrated and Playboy. And I had been gone for a long period of time. I was lonely. I was a little bit depressed. I wanted to get home. And in that moment of weakness, the thought hit me, why not glance at the Playboy? Nobody will see you. You're 3,000 miles away from anybody at this dinkin', dinky, forsaken airport. So as I reached for the Playboy, I suddenly got zapped with a twinge of conscience and diverted my hand to the Sports Illustrated and began to read the Sports Illustrated when all of a sudden I heard a shrieky little voice from across this airport all the way across the concourse, a little old lady, about 75 years old, who shouted at me, Dewey, is that you? And I looked up and I don't know who this lady is. I don't have a clue. And it turns out that three years ago, she was at a conference where I spoke and happened to be flying in back to California, landing at Albany. And if I had walked up to her with a centerfold dangling, it's over. That fast. Dr. MacArthur would get a letter. And I'm history. 
But why in the world fear a little old lady when an almighty, infinitely holy God is watching? I must avoid even the appearance of evil. Number eight, God has placed me under authority. God has placed me under authority, which he appointed for my protection and direction. I'm a man under authority. The elders of my church, the administration at this fine college, the government, I'm a man under authority, and therefore I must obey them. Unless required to disobey the word of God. I believe 1 Samuel 15:23 is true. Rebellion equals the sin of witchcraft. And for me to willfully rebel against those in authority over me at this college is wrong. Whether or not I agree with what the authority says, if it doesn't violate a biblical absolute, rebellion is wrong. It is equal to the sin of witchcraft. And so to pick up a picket sign and march in front of Dr. MacArthur's office would be sin. To violate what I know to be the will of those in the administration is wrong. Number nine, my brain controls the way I live and therefore I will not fill it with garbage. My brain controls the way I live, I will not fill it with garbage. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. I cannot afford the possibility of a polluted mind. There are movies I simply will not watch, TV shows I will turn off, and magazines I will not read. I cannot face the possibility of a polluted mind. Of all of the ones I've mentioned so far, this is the one probably violated the most at this school. Underestimating the power of the media to brainwash. And while we will exercise strict discipline in everything that we eat, I see it in the lunch line every day, evaluating every little morsel placed before you as to what you will or will not place into your mouth. I am shocked at the fact that so many of us don't have any conscience whatsoever about what we pump into our brains. It is a carefully orchestrated seduction of a generation. And Satan's message is characterized by three things. Three things. Immorality. Rebellion and violence to willingly pump a message of immorality rebellion or violence into my mind is to allow the enemy to pollute it finally number 10 Jesus Christ hung in my place and took the shots that were meant for me therefore it is now my highest privilege to stand in his place and take the shots that are meant for him Colossians 1.24, Paul said, I rejoice at my sufferings because I am filling up in my body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. His suffering isn't over. People have attacked him for generations. But he is not physically here any longer. They can't get their hands on him. He can no longer be crucified, so they do the next best thing. They grab hold of you and me. And frankly, my attitude is take your best shot. He hung in my place taking the shots meant for me. It's a privilege to stand in his place and take the shots that are meant for him. Persecution is a privilege, not something to be feared. Let me end with this story. Several years ago, a pastor by the name of Kifa Simpongi wrote a book entitled A Distant Grief. It chronicles the story of Christians in Uganda under the demonic terror of Idi Amin. 
The book is one of those that grips you, you can't put it down. And in chapter 4, he records this story. A family, the last name of which was Okello, visited his church on a Sunday morning. And like any good pastor, during the week he went to visit the first-time visitors. He writes that the Okellos lived in a large white stucco mansion. We arrived at their home in the late afternoon as the sun was just setting over the valley. A blossoming flame tree stood at their front gate and a wall of hibiscus shrubs enclosed the well-kept flower gardens of their enormous yard. The entire atmosphere was one of aristocratic affluence. As we walked to the front door, I began to wonder if I was dressed properly, and I tried to think of how I would begin. The door was half open. We knocked and stepped inside. Beneath our feet was a beautiful light green carpet. A zebra skin hung in the hallway, and through the door of the sitting room, I could see colorful baskets and expensive European furniture. We waited for our host for several minutes, but no one came to welcome us. When we called out a greeting, there was only silence. I began to think that we had come to the wrong house, and I turned to my friend to suggest that we leave. But just at that moment, a small boy appeared in the doorway of the sitting room. He stood completely still, and his arms were raised straight in the air. Even in the half-light of the hallway, I recognized the child as Mr. Okello's youngest son. I moved toward him, strangely moved by his haunting appearance and deeply puzzled. He began to cry and tried to speak, but his words were lost in sobs. Before I could reach him, he fell completely stiff to the floor. I bent down to pick up the child. As I did, I looked beyond him into the sitting room, and a deep shock passed through my body. The curtains were open. The sun was shining through onto a carpet covered with blood and human waste. Broken teeth and eyes pulled from their sockets were scattered throughout the room. On a table in the center of the floor, three human tongues were laid out in a row as if on public display. Without thinking, I grabbed young Okello from the floor, and with my friend, we ran shaking and trembling from the house. The short distance to our parking space seemed to be many miles, and with every sound, I thought myself a dead man. We reached the car. I laid the boy on the back seat. My friend and I took our own seats in deep fear and drove quickly towards my home. The boy, throughout the trip, remained motionless, his arms raised rigidly over his head. When we arrived at the house, I put Akello on a couch and stared helplessly at his paralyzed body. His hands were cold, his eyes stared straight ahead, seeing nothing. Later, I learned what had happened. This boy was the sole survivor from a nightmare of death. Soldiers from the army of Idi Amin had come to his home late in the evening. They had raped his mother, tortured to death each member of the family, and 12-year-old Okello was somehow overlooked. When the killing was over and the soldiers had left, he crawled under his bed. He stayed there for more than a day, his mind empty and his body paralyzed. It wasn't until he heard our voices in the hallway that he had been able to move. Now once again, the boy's body was stiff. His mind was completely closed to human contact. I tried to come for him, but no words or gestures could reach him. There was no sign of life in his eyes. In utter frustration, I picked up my Bible and began to read out loud. I read chapter after chapter about the Christ who promised to see his children beyond the grave. I read of a Redeemer who claimed that his words were life and spirit. I had nothing to say to that small shattered life lying before me. I did not think that the truths that I read could even reach his deaf ears. When I looked up from my reading, Okello was slowly lowering his arms. His neck was no longer stiff. He turned his head to look at my face. There were tears in his eyes, but beyond his tears there was life and hope. He looked away again, breathed deeply, and closed his eyes.
The story ends in this way. Over a period of time, the healing of Okello became complete. When I saw him a few days later, he was playing soccer in the yard, running and shouting with other children. He made many friends, and before long, he adjusted to the poorer communal circumstances of his new life. This boy was the first of many children to come to a home I had set up as a result of the brutal killings by Amin soldiers. In the months that followed the murder of the Okello family, Amin orphaned thousands of Ugandan children. Soon in every town and village there were dozens of young boys and girls who had witnessed the torturous, beast-like deaths of their parents. As I traveled throughout Uganda collecting children for the home, I heard many terrifying stories and I became convinced that the regime of Idi Amin was not merely tyrannical, but it was demonic. Here's the point. That's the price a man paid for going to church on a Sunday morning. And in the midst of that, that church grew from a handful of people to over 14,000. 14,000 people willing to look Mr. Amin in the eye and say to him these words. Mr. Amin... We are men and women of conviction. We believe truths that are non-negotiable. We have no price. And you can torture our wives and murder our children. But for you, Mr. Amin, we will never compromise. No price. Are there people like that today? When Jesus Christ returns, will he find the faith on the earth? How about you? Do you have a price? Let's bow together in prayer.